When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, chefs. You're listening to Chef's PSA Podcast. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about technique versus creativity. When I'm hiring a cook, which one do I deem more important? What do I think is more important for a chef? And at the end of this, I'll give you my process when I'm trying to be creative and what I do to get into the zone. So first, let's talk about technique. And when it comes to technique, I do feel that technique is superior to creativity for the majority of your career and probably for about 90% of the jobs out there. And I'll tell you why, because when it comes to creativity, um, you either have it or you don't. A lot of people are born with natural creativity. There's ways that you could um, boost up your creativity, but techniques and proper technique can get you very far throughout your career to a very high level, uh, even if you don't have creativity to go with it. So if you don't have creativity, you could always fall back on technique. And as a chef, and when I used to hire people, you know, the truth of the matter is you're not going to get your dish on the menu right away, especially when you're right out of culinary school. Like, let me be honest, no chef is like going to their very green culinary school students and saying, you know, what, what dish ideas that you have, let me see your creative food. The fact of the matter is that doesn't happen. But what they need from a cook when they're just starting out is what are your technical skills? Do you know how to dice? Do you know how to brunoise? How are your knife skills? Do you know how to set up a proper station? Do you know how to saute? Do you know how to braise? And all the other cooking techniques that go with it. And that is what I look for when I'm hiring someone is do you have a strong grasp on the fundamentals, which I deem more important than creativity. When you're the head chef or the sous chef or the chef de cuisine or whoever's really writing the menu, um, the last thing that you need really is a, a creative person that's going to take a spin or, or riff your food and not do it the way that you want it. So sometimes creativity can be a double-edged sword when you're not in a position that allows you to be creative, which you know is unfortunate because it does push a lot of creative types out of the industry when um, it's, it's, it's like equivalent to you know, you have all these great ideas and you, you, of what you want to do with your art, but you don't yet know how to paint. Um, so it could be discouraging early on in your career when you're not allowed to express your creativity. But the fact of the matter is, and the fact of the matter remains that when you're a chef, you're looking for people that can execute your vision and your creativity. That's you, you, you know, you've worked all these years. You finally made it to a place where you're able to put uh, your ideas forward and, and uh, create your own food. Um, and unfortunately the last thing that you need is someone 
um, changing up your dish when you're not looking, which by the way, is like, in my opinion, it's like a huge culinary sin. You should never change your chef's dish. The only person that should change the chef's dish is the chef. So, um, that, that's, that's always been a rule, um, that I've had in the kitchen is no one changes the chef's dish, but the chef that is like culinary 101 because you put a lot of effort into a dish designing a menu and it's like a huge slap in the face when someone comes in and says, oh, I, I could probably do that better than that chef. Let me, let me change it up because I have all these really good ideas. And it's like coming from a place of ego because the chef needs to be able to put his food out for guests. They want to come back and make sure that they're getting the same dish. And if it's different every time, it's like, uh, well, it hurts the reputation of the restaurant. It hurts the reputation of the chef. It's going to hurt business. All because someone wanted to be creative and take um, you know, creative freedoms with with another chef's dish. So people, if you're listening to this, if you're not the chef, you should never change a chef's dish without speaking to them first. And I'm not saying you can't do it, but you should always have the conversation first. You need to go up to the chef and say, I think this might work better. I think this would work. Would you mind if we try it? And the answer might be no, get back on your station. Or the answer might be, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's discuss it and look at it. And it all depends on where you work and the type of chef that you're working for. But as a general rule, never change your chef's dish without asking. But anyway, so let's talk about technique for a little bit. Why do I think technique is important? Well, because if you have solid technique and and there's a wide range of skill levels of techniques. Like if you go to like a three Michelin star restaurant, the Brunois is perfect, you know, where they're Brunois in Tarragon and, uh, you know, the, the sear on the fish is perfect and the pasta is, is cooked perfectly. Like there's a high level of technique. And when you have a high level of technique, you could really go work anywhere. Um, you could be a sous chef anywhere because you, you know that you're confident in whatever, whatever realm of cooking that someone puts you in. But if you have a low level technique, it's only going to take you to a certain, uh, a certain level of position of restaurant that you want to work in. So I would focus early on in my career is really master the fundamentals of cooking, really master your technique, the way that trends change. You could look at an Instagram feed and you could look at food from five years ago and then look at, you know, from a great chef. And then you could look at their food today and you'll say, wow, it's unrecognizable. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that now. And that's because trends evolve so rapidly. Plating trends, the ingredients that people are using, it changes. I mean, you, you, I, I've seen Instagram trends like, I don't know if everyone remembers, like there was this... Uh, uh, like a stamp where you'd use like at the bottom of a cup and it would make this like beautiful, you know, stamp. And then it was the comb and then it was the paintbrush and then it was the spiral. And, you know, all these things evolve. And regardless of what the trend is or the, the creative plating, like what doesn't evolve, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't evolve, but it, it evolves much slower as the technique. And here's here's something when it comes to cooking techniques, like, yeah, let's just say for the sake of this conversation, a thousand years ago, people are cooking with fire, water. Yeah, that's pretty much it, right? So they're boiling things and they're, they're cooking things over fire. Um, fast forward, you know, a thousand years later, we're boiling things, we're cooking things over fire. Doesn't really change that much. Where you saw a great evolution in technique was, you know, I would say probably the early 2000s when Ferran Adria came out. And he started cooking things differently. He started approaching food differently. You now we're working with liquid nitrogen. 
No one was working with liquid nitrogen 50 years ago in, in the culinary world. You know, we're cooking sous vide. Uh, we're using anti-griddles. We're using alginates. Food, for the first time since, you know, the dawn of cooking with fire and water, saw this great jump in technique, creativity, and evolution. So that was like a pivotal moment in time. I, I, I would say like the next big thing was when Rene Redzepi started doing all the foraging and, and uh, fermentation. And not that that hasn't been around, but it wasn't ubiquitous. And now you see it pretty much in any top restaurants. They're doing some form of foraging or fermenting or uh, even, even if they're not foraging and they're just saying it to, you know, to get more sales or to add to the narrative of the restaurant. But the fact of the matter is, is that now you see the more advanced techniques that you would see like in a obscure World's 50 Best or three Michelin star restaurant. You see it like in your neighborhood restaurant. They're fermenting just like, just like Renee. They're hopefully, you know, they got, everyone's going to have reindeer dick on their salad soon. Uh, you know, according to Renee Redzepi, or I'm sorry, um, it's in his new book if you don't get the joke. But anyway, long story short, focus on technique. When I was opening up um, a hotel a couple of years back and we were delayed. So I had all these culinary uh, people on my team, all these culinarians, and we had about a month to get ready for opening, but the building, we couldn't get in it. So um, I had everyone on board. What am I going to do with them? I said, well, I'm going to run it like a culinary school. And what I did every day is every day we're going to Brunois. And we're going to do it again tomorrow. We're going to learn how to, you know, tournay. We're going to brunoise. We're going to learn how to cut chives perfectly. We're going to make French omelets. And I, I really just focused on making sure that they knew how to work and that they had really strong fundamentals and technique. And fast forward that to a couple months later when we opened, we opened up strong. All my cooks were good. And I would say, I remember having this conversation with one of my, with one of my cooks, uh, shout out, uh, to Lauren Pogue, if you're listening, um, and I remember having a conversation with her. She was a culinary student at the time. And I said, when you're done with working here and the training within a couple of months, and she was still a student, I said, before, before we're done, your knife skills will be better than your instructors. And so months later, I went back to her and asked her, I said, hey, remember I told you this? And she said, yes. I said, so how are your knife skills compared to your instructors? And she said, yeah, they're better than them. <laughs> they're asking me how I do it. So anyway, point being is like, Technique will carry you very far in your career. But now let's talk about creativity. And when it comes to creativity, like, like I said, not everyone has it. So if you don't have it, you could always fall back on your technique. But true creativity, you know, I, I would argue that mm, almost everything is not really original. You know, it's some form or fashion of something that's already been done. You know, the Chinese did it, the French did it, the Italians did it. Someone's already done it. And usually chefs are saying, oh, I'm putting my spin on something. It's like, well, you're not putting that big of a spin on it. You're just taking ideas from other cultures that have been invented. I haven't really seen chefs come up with something original that doesn't exist. The way they combine it might be original, but you know, the, the, the fundamental techniques are not. And I would say the, the only two chefs I could think of, and I'm not knocking any chefs, but I'm, I could only think of two that I don't think they stole from anybody because all chefs steal. Like, you know, I, I did a PSA once, like if you're going to steal a dish, um, you know, make, make sure that they're not next door to you or, or make sure your chef doesn't have the same cookbook where you stole the dish. Because you know, the fact of the matter is all chefs get inspiration. There's nothing wrong with it. We all do it. Um, but there's two chefs that I could think of that I don't think that they stole from anybody or got inspired by anyone. I shouldn't say stole because um, I, don't, I don't mean it in a negative way. But Ferran Adria, you know, El Bulli, 
I don't think he got inspired uh, by another chef. I think all those ideas were original. That, like, to me, that is true creativity. Like, you can't pinpoint where they got their ideas from, and it's completely original. And he set the trend for so many other chefs to follow. You know, Grant Ackett's, Wiley Dufresne. You started to see all these um, types of restaurants pop up. Even, even me. I mean, uh, back in 2006, I was in California, and we had a restaurant that was, you know, doing the bubble food, I like to call it, you know, the foams and the, uh, you know, the spheres and whatnot. Um, and I wanted to be the first chef in California to do it. Um, and, you know, I was like, I'm going to get some, some clout copying food directly out of El Bulli 2003 or whatever version I had of it. Um, but the fact of the matter is like everyone was stealing or borrowing from Ferran. And the second chef I would say that was completely original that I had never seen this style before, uh, would probably be Rene Redzepi. You know, I I, I, you know, I like to talk trash on his reindeer salad, but um, all jokes aside, the guy's brilliant. And no one else was doing the foraging, fermenting food um, on the level that he was doing. I would say, like, to me, that was true creativity. I'd never seen anyone do food on that level until he did it. And then everyone did it. You know, when the Noma cookbook came out and I, I want to say this was like maybe 2010, um, when the first book came out, I might be, I might be off a little bit, but I remember when it came out, it was like, boom, everyone was doing, you know, that sort of Nordic style plating. And, you know, <laughs> everyone had nasturtiums somewhere on their menu. I was even growing nasturtiums because I thought, uh, I didn't know where to buy them at the time. And because it was such a, a fringe ingredient, you couldn't really find them anywhere. I was like, well, I, I went to, uh, you know, to the, to the store and I bought nasturtium seeds and I started growing nasturtiums at home. Um, just so I could, so I could have some nasturtium somewhere. So everyone wanted to be like Renee at the time. And I was, you know, I was no exception to that. I, I, I highly admired the food that he was doing at the time. But to, again, back to the point that to me was true creativity chefs that, um, were not borrowing from anybody. And, you know, I would, I would even actually, I should go back and I should say, you know, what Thomas Keller was doing when he first opened up the French laundry and the salmon cornets and the oysters and pearls, like no one was playing with food the way he was at the time. Um, you know, you see these, these great chefs, you know, the Thomas Kellers, the Charlie Trotters, the Ferran Adrias, um, you know, the Rene Redzepis. And what's amazing about them and their... Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Creativity is when they move, everyone moves. And so they have a, they have a huge responsibility. It's like having, you know, the, anything that they say is a loaded weapon. They put out a cookbook and they say, this is great. Then everyone's going to do it. Trust me. Every, every single sous chef in the wrong restaurants putting out food that doesn't belong because, you know, uh, Rene did it or Ferran did it back then or whoever, right? So it's interesting to see um, how creativity works. But long story short, creativity can get you to a certain level of food, but I would caution chefs, especially um, new chefs when you get your restaurant to be careful with the creativity. My rule of thumb was always 70, 30 uh, on menus. So 70% of the menu was always dishes that I knew would sell. 
Uh, I, I hate to call them fastballs, but I'm, you know, I'm not talking about strictly fastballs, but you know, things that people could wrap their head around was about 70% of my menu. And then 30% of my menu was always the experimental things that I wanted to, okay, let's see how are people ready for this, you know, in this particular market. And a lot of times, you know, um, when the Noma book came out, I'll give you an example. If you were doing Noma food in the wrong market, like I'm just making this up, but if you're in Nebraska trying to do the food that Rene Rezepi's doing, people might not be ready for that. Um, so it's important that you understand your market too, because you know I, I've I've been the victim of that. Like maybe you know trying to trying to punch up and and uh, people just aren't ready, and then you know people think, oh, what what the hell are you serving me here? This food doesn't make sense. You know, it's the chef's ego on a plate. So. By the way, going back to a chef's PSA that I did a while back, cooks, uh, if you're going to put a new dish on the menu at, that you invented, make sure the chef doesn't have the same cookbook. <laughs> and that's because, uh, it, you know, everyone always says, oh, I got this, like, chef, I want to do my food. I want to, I have all these dish ideas. And it's like, okay, show me. And they think that you don't have the same cookbook. And it's like, I have that book. That's not your dish. You stole it. It's okay. Everyone does it. But don't say it's your dish. So anyway, that's just... Uh, that's for people that don't think that you're the only one in the kitchen reading books. Like this is the business that we're in. Your chef is reading the same books that you're reading. He's watching the same, same shows you're, you're watching or she, and they are also following the same chefs that you're following on social media. So don't be surprised when they already know where that dish came from. Anyway, long story short, don't do that. So I'm going to wrap up, but I want to tell you how I would use the creative process um, when I was a chef and I was writing menus. So I've gone through several different methods to get creative. Um, and I'm going to go through all of them with you. Now, keep in mind, a couple of years back, I was the chef of a restaurant where we did a tasting menu. Um, so the food had to be pretty high level. And, um, you know, I was trying to compete to be the best restaurant in the city. So uh, you, you know that type of food, right? So, you know, again, 10 years ago, it's tasting menu for Anadria style. Everyone wants to copy him and Renee. So that's kind of where my head was at. Um, Years later, I, th I think I pulled it back a little where I'm not doing that type of food. Again, now I'm trying to do just good food, but not necessarily tasting menu style. So the creative process for both was slightly different. So the generic way when I need to get in the creative zone for me is I will usually put on like um, classical music, Bach, whatever, something like that. So air by you know, Bach, I'll put that on repeat um, and I just let it go. I put my headphones on. I'm listening to that. Um, or if I don't have headphones, I'm just listening to it, you know, um, slightly low in the office. A lot of people like to use uh, binaural beats um, when they're, you know, studying or whatever. It helps put you in a, in a brainwave state, which will accelerate um, your creativity. And, you know, if you have iTunes or whatever, you could find binaural beats that will be good for uh, study or creativity or whatever. So putting that on is good. I don't like to listen to music with lyrics because I end up singing the song in my head. So if, if I'm listening to only built for Cuban links by Ray Kwan, I just, you know, I start banging out glaciers of ice or something. And I'm like, Oh no, I need to be banging out recipes, not hip hop lyrics. So no lyrics for me. I sit down. I usually sip something caffeinated. In my case, I'm usually writing menus in the afternoon. So it's usually like a green tea. Um, I drink coffee in the morning, green tea in the afternoon. So I'll, I'll drink something caffeinated, put my headphones on. I like to chew gum. I've read before that uh, chewing gum stimulates you mentally. Um, mint gum in particular is what I like. And I've also heard that uh, 
uh, peppermint or spearmint is good for creativity and memory. And then I have this other thing that I do, um, which is a recent thing. Um, there's these things called, uh, I think they're called boom, boom sticks and they're like scented sticks that I will, you know, smell and they smell like, you know, there's some that smell like spearmint or whatever, uh, cinnamon. And I smell them and I, it like puts my brain, okay, it's time to focus. And the reason I have all these anchors is because it reminds me that, okay, you need to be in the creative zone. This is what you need to do. And so every time I'm doing that, my brain just, you know, it switches. Okay. You're in creative mode. And then I just start writing ideas. I just, I just think, and I just write, and I just think, and I just write. Um, so that's what I do to get creative. Now I've had other methods in the past where, um, you know, I might go to a museum to look uh, at different art. I might say, okay, I need to get inspired by different colors. So if I wanted to create a red dish, what would I do? Or a blue dish, or I might go, you know, by the color spectrum, you know, uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, white, whatever, something like that. So I'll follow the color wheel. Then I might do food. And again, these are things that I challenge myself with. They'll say, how do I do food with inverse colors? So like uh, purple and yellow or uh, red and green. So let's, let's make a dish of inverse colors. Then I'll think, how do I add texture and contrast to the dish? So how do I make the dish hot and cold? How do I make it, uh, you know, crunchy and smooth? So I will start thinking, you know, some of these things. Is there, is there some sort of uh, inverse correlation on the dish that, uh, that will make it interesting? Other things that I will think about is I will think about the season and a lot of people will think, okay, you know, you know, five seasons. So, uh, spring, you know, summer, Indian summer, fall, winter. So if you go through the five seasons and then, you know, okay, in the spring, we're going to do morels and asparagus or whatever. But I try to say, okay, no, let's, let's get past the morels and asparagus. Like what else is spring? Spring is like renewal, rebirth. I think pastel colors like Easter, um, temperature change, transition. Okay. Now those are the things that are going through my mind. Like how do I create a dish that will encompass more than just, uh, morels and asparagus or spring lamb? It's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's the obvious, but let's go deeper. How do we go deeper and think about, uh, spring differently? Um, and then I used to challenge my team and this was a good exercise when I would, uh, get into a creative process with a group. So let's just say there's four people in the group, I would say everyone has to come up with 10 dishes and, and I would assign them all different. I would say, okay, you're assigned uh, spring and the color green. You're assigned uh, spring and uh, the color red and you're assigned spring and I want you to think cold and hot. And so I would give them very specific parameters and then they'd come back and say, okay, these are the dishes that I came up with. Um, and that would that would help because if you have, again, let's just say you have four people uh, and maybe myself included. So let's say it's five. Then at the end of it, you'd have 50 dishes, right? If everyone just comes up with 10, at the end of it, you have 50 dishes and maybe you only need 10 for the menu. So we have 50 dishes and then we just sit in a room. It's like, okay, what do we think about this? Yes, no, that would be good, but let's do it with this person's that. Um, and so we all start bouncing ideas off each other. And it was, it was really great brainstorming um, when we would approach things that way. Um, and then one of the last things I'll talk about when I would think about uh, creativity that would help me, and, and this was something that um, when I just started, uh, you know, something that I learned, but I also started noticing patterns in cooking is like, uh, you've heard the expression, if it goes together, it grows together. <laughs> that used to be on a voicemail for uh, one of the, uh, uh, voice recording, I should say, for one of the places that I worked where they said, oh, Chef Andre Natera says if it grows together, it goes together. It's like, 
everyone always used to associate that with me. It was like, I didn't invent that. I think that's been around for years, but someone quoted me saying that somewhere. So that, that became the thing. And every time I'd bump into a friend, oh, you're the, it goes together, grows together guys. Like, no, I don't think that was me. I think that was like, you know, every chef that came before me, but whatever. So anyway, long story short, I would look at dishes. So let's just take sushi, for example. So if you look at the seaweed and the sushi, and then you look at the fish, and then you look at the wasabi, like all these things grow in the dark. So I would say, okay, let's try and pair things that grow in the dark, or let's try and pair things that grow on bushes, or let's try and pair things that grow high up on trees and the things that would eat those things high up in trees. So I would, I would start thinking about that. So it's like, okay, what would a rabbit eat? And, and I, I don't, I don't really know if rabbits eat carrots. I think they do. Um, but it's like, okay, if we have a rabbit dish, I imagine like a rabbit, a carrot, and what else would they have? You know, they might be eating some lettuce. Okay, so how do we combine that um, onto a dish? And then I would also sometimes, uh, and this is this is no longer relevant, but at one point I had a, an exercise where every dish needed to look like something. And that was like, um, there would have to be certain shapes on the dish. There would have to be certain textures um, and there had to be a focal point. So I'll just give you an example. Every dish had a main focal point, um, and that was the star of the dish, where there was a protein or a vegetable or whatever, but let's, let's just say in this case it was a, a lamb for whatever reason, and so it's okay, lamb is the focal point, and then we needed to have uh, two vegetables. So let's just say that lamb had uh, carrots and um, asparagus for the sake of conversation, so it'd be like, okay, it's, gonna, it's gotta have carrots, and those carrots need to be prepared at least two different ways. So I might do a cooked carrot, and then I might do a carrot puree. Um, and then the other vegetable, I'd say it needs to have a raw preparation and a cooked preparation. So I would say, okay, uh, there might be like, shavings of asparagus, and there might be, you know, asparagus tips that are cleaned up on the plate. So it's okay, we have a raw preparation, um, we have a cooked preparation, two different vegetables, and then we need to include some sort of herb. So I mean, we were talking about nasturtiums earlier, maybe we put some nasturtiums on the plate or whatever, and then it would have a sauce. So every dish had to follow this similar format where I was like, okay, two types of vegetables, two different preparations on each vegetable, an herb, a sauce, and a focus. Um, and that was like, I picked that up from a cookbook, and I won't say which one, but um, actually it was probably several. You could notice a lot of cookbooks that were written in a certain era that all kind of had that similar style. It's like, okay, I'm picking up, and then there was the same shapes. It's like circles, uh, so you know, shaved coins of carrot, radish, whatever. Um, footballs, so you know, that was the canal or you know, the dollop on the plate. And then what I used to call like uh, branches. So there was always like straight lines or branches of stuff. So those shapes were always on a plate. So maybe it was like the slice of lamb tenderloin that would look like a circle, uh, carrots that were sliced into coins, you know, a football shape like a canal of carrot puree or whatever. You, you get the idea. So I would, I would check all these things off. So anyway, long story short, that was my creative process. That's how I did things. So hopefully... You could take some of what I said if you don't have a creative process and maybe incorporate it into yours. Um, maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you don't need one. Maybe you're super creative already. Anyway, that's going to be it for the show today. Um, you could follow along at uh, Chef's PSA on all social channels. So Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, YouTube. Um, if you want to support the show, you could buy the book, Chef's PSA. How Not to Be the Biggest Idiot in the Kitchen, new book, Chef's PSA, Culinary Leadership Fundamentals, out soon, hopefully by next week. Uh, I wrapped it up. I got it back from the editor. 
it'll be here. Uh, I'll announce it on, on social media, but um, I just want to do one final glance before I publish. Um, you could, there's in the show notes here on Spotify, you could support the show and we have some merch. I have a uh, directly on my Instagram page. You could also get it on chefspsa.com. Um, I'll update the merch every month with a, with a new Chef's PSA uh, shirt, hoodie, etc. And um, don't forget, if you're listening right now and you love the show, which I know you love the show because um, you keep coming back and it's probably the best chef show there is because I've been listening to these other chef podcasts um, and they're not giving you what I'm giving you. I'm giving you the real, real. Anyway, if you love the show, give it five stars on Spotify or whatever platform you're using. If you don't love the show, well, then don't give it anything. Uh, if you want to give someone a bad score, give someone else a bad score. I only want five stars because this is a five-star podcast. Anyway, thank you all and hit the porno music. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.